This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode of Marketing Trends features an interview with Harsh Jaharkar, Head of Marketing for Enterprise Cloud Platform and Ecosystem at Atlassian. Harsh has also held senior marketing and product management roles with PayPal, Zendesk, and Slack. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Harsh talks about SaaS 2.0 and what that means for marketers, how to incorporate design thinking into your marketing, and why the best marketers think like CEOs. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And in studio, Harsh, what's going on? It's going well. How are you? It's great. I had a great weekend, although I guess technically that time stamps this episode, but uh, <laughs> it's a great day here in sunny Palo Alto, and we are excited to have you on. You have a really interesting background with some stops at companies like Slack, Zendesk, and most recently, your time at Atlassian. But first, how did you get started in marketing? I am what they would call an accidental marketer. So I'm an engineer, a mechanical engineer with a computer science minor. Ended up being a designer, Web 1.0. I was, was flying around building websites for for bigger companies like like an Allstate or Audi. And from there, I turned into a, a product person. So I loved I loved taking the engineering aspect and design, putting that together and building products. And that's how I ended up in the Bay Area. And I actually got exposed to marketing at PayPal. I joined PayPal a while back to take one of their APIs and turn it into more of a business line. And I was exposed to marketers and I was like, this is interesting. You know, I've been so focused on building products and that that involves really understanding your audience. Like, who are you really building for? Does this actually matter? How is it gonna change what they do or what they wanna accomplish? And when I started working with marketers, I I actually went in with with a, I have to say, to be perfectly honest, a very, misconceived notion of what marketers do. I was like, yeah, these are the people who are going to get me uh, some promotion, go and buy me some ads, yeah. uh, put up my website. And I was blown away by a totally different perspective in terms of what marketing actually was. It was about making the market. And that was my best friend. And I accidentally became a marketer because if you had asked me 12 years ago, if I wanted to be a marketer, I'd say, oh, absolutely not. I'm a product guy. I never want to be a marketer. But here I am. Yeah, it's funny how many folks we have on the show that didn't get a start in marketing and kind of learned to love it because of how close they were. Tell me a little bit about your current role at Atlassian. What are you working on? What are you excited about? Yeah, so I work on things that are horizontal. What I mean by that is things that cross multiple products or platform or ecosystem. So how do we take all the different aspects of Atlassian, our products, our capabilities, and bring them together in a way that is better together. So I have focus on things like that. 
So how do we tell the story of our platform? Uh, how does our platform come together to build confidence in our customers so that they can do the things that they need to do? How do we take our ecosystem and use that to extend what Atlassian does outside of our own house? So working with partners, working with third-party software developers, really taking this concept of the multiverse and connecting us to other software providers out there so that, again, we can build bridges and ultimately it's for the benefit of our customers. So I look across multiple products company-wide and try to tell that story and bring that to life. I love this idea of the multiverse. Uh, reminds me of uh, Into the Spider-Verse. I don't yes. know if you saw it. I love it. But can you share a little bit about like what, what do you mean by the multiverse? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in the, I guess in the beginning, you know, if you take this back to the same, same metaphor, you know, there were a few different providers and things were very siloed. And then we had this explosion that was basically an app for everything. Uh, the ability for any given person to start up and ship became so compressed. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing and benefits everybody. What that also created was this sort of explosion of choice. And with that, we started seeing multiple pockets of solutions out there. Things for designers, things for developers, things for IT folks, things for marketers, things for salespeople, and on and on and on and on. So each of them became its own sort of universe. And the problem is today's teams are so cross-functional. They're multidimensional. They want to work across tools and they don't want the friction of knocking on doors every single time they're going from one workflow to another workflow. The multiverse is really how do we connect these things in such a seamless and beautiful way, they don't even see it. They just glide through whatever they're doing across tools, across software, and they just focus on getting work done. Yeah, there are so many. I mean, we've all seen the chart, the MarTech chart, where it's like the you know, 6,000 yeah. logos or whatever it is. There's so many different ways that those can create friction for the modern marketer or just the modern person, you know, the modern executive at large, but specifically for the marketer who's dealing with all these tools that they use for their day-to-day -day job, but also all the tools that, you know, help them get paid or help them, uh, you know, communicate with other people in the company or whatever it is. You talked about this idea of like SaaS marketing 2.0. Can you share what that is? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen an evolution. I think we've seen an evolution in the beginning from sort of the early days of, okay, all we really need is potentially websites, some sales enablement, and let's go, let's go get a sales team and let's just put them to work. All right. This was, this was the early era. What's mm -hmm. um, like Siebel systems. Exactly. Like that. yeah. That's right. You know, so that, that's where it started. And then we evolved into this middle period where it was really about growth hacking. It was really about how do we take products and engineer them in such a way with a marketer's mind so that we can build growth into the product. And that was an awesome thing too. We've now, I think, entered sort of this third era, which is finding the right balance between absolutely well-engineered products that have the right hooks, that have the right vir virality cross-flow built in, but complemented with an account-based approach. So we've talked about account-based, I think, for at least a few years as in, in the marketing world. We, that's evolved now where account-based isn't just about MarTech and tools. It's how you actually use the tool is much more important. And this era, SaaS 2.0 for marketing, is really about blending together product-led growth with account-based marketing. How do you think that like marketers, that changes their day-to-day? 
Like how does it change their their current workflows to have those two things like cross together? It actually makes it a bit more challenging because it's almost like, you know, some folks are left-brained, some folk, folks mm-hmm. are right-brained. This is a center-brained activity. It is, it is actually quite hard because on one hand, you have to think like someone who's going to manufacture growth. So you have to think about what's inside the product. Yeah. Every experience, every step of the journey, every interface, and how do you remove friction? How do you move people from one place to another? But at the same time, you also have to think about, you know, if you have one or more sales teams, if you actually segmented between a self-service model and a high-touch model, how do you balance those things? So it becomes a very standard thing. You have to think about not just the growth aspect of it in the product, but from a high-touch go-to-market model, how do you carve out the right set of target accounts? What do these people care about? The, the one thing I've learned there is that sometimes when people think about account-based marketing, they just think about the accounts. Account-based is really people-based. So to do that well, you really have to understand the psychology off the people that you're trying to market to. And in terms of marketing to them, what you're really trying to do is either inspire, inform, or educate. So it really becomes more of a psychological exercise, understanding which industry you're going after, who is the persona, is it the CIO, is it the CTO, is it the CMO, what do they care about? And using that to inform all your marketing strategy. So you have worked at your, your early days at Zendesk and Slack. I'm curious what you learned from a perspective on that self-service when people are buying with a buying committee. Because like part of the thing that's so tough, I think, with self-service is this idea, and obviously like Elastic seems famous for this, but it's this idea that, okay, if if they're making a buying decision in a group, we have to provide everything for them because they're not going to touch a sales rep potentially. So how do we provide every single, you know, thing for this for this group to make a decision? And, you know, and I know that stuff out there, out there that's like, you know, 60% of the buying decision is already made by the time it gets to, you know, the place or and all that sort of stuff. But like, what are some best practices on this? The, the best practice really starts by understanding what does that buyer journey look like? So you talk about the 60% thing. So one, one click into that, it's really, what are these people trying to do and what are their own respective journeys? The primary decision maker is going to have a journey that's fundamentally different than someone who's in procurement, yeah. uh, who's in IT or who's in risk management or whatever else. So it's understanding what their journeys are. When you understand that, some of that is, is definitely going to be online. And some of that, they will want to talk to somebody. So how do you marry the two things in a graceful way? Things that are automated and things that are sometimes not as scalable, but you have to do them to unlock that growth. So the, the fundamental best practice there was you can pick a model. Let's say you are going to go after an autom- automated model, which is great, but you also have to design for the other, if it's 80-20, the other 20%. Yeah. Right. So how do you understand those journeys? Do you have the right, do you have you captured the right mindset of that person? And do you have the right content for them? Because they will need it, even if they've done 60, 70, 80% of the research up front, they need the, the last 20% that could be a, a hand-holding journey. When you said talk to people, do you mean like chat? Do you mean, like, what do you mean when they say they want to talk to people? So there's multiple ways. Uh, you know, let's take two scenarios. One is inbound. So if someone's already made that, made that, you know, 70% of the journey on, online, through content, et cetera, they've self-served basically. The last, you know, 10 or 20%, they're either going to want to raise their hand and say, hey, I'm interested, but here are my concerns. Who's going to help me out? 
And who's going to help me out without trying to really sell me hard on this stuff? And that's a key part because what you want to do there is just educate and they will take care of the rest of it. On the other hand, there are some other cases where people are passively engaged and you're going to go outbound to them. And when you go outbound, it is really arming your your SDRs, your BDRs, and your sales team on not just what your product does, but why someone should care about it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really what I'm focused on. So this is partly human, but arming some of the humans who who will be using digital challenge, whether it's email or automated drip, et cetera, along with along with that, what's the right message and content for it? You've also talked about in the past chatbots. I wanted to do a little bit on chatbots yeah. because I think it's it's relevant for for what we're talking about right now, but it's I think hyper relevant for every marketer going forward. You wrote three ways to make people love your chatbots. Yes. Um, can you walk us through that? Absolutely. the The seed for this was you know at Narva we were launching chatbots. We were one of the early early Facebook partners to go go live with Messenger. And when we started thinking about it, the challenge was people want help, and in many cases they want to help themselves. And if you can give them a smart, intelligent, automated way to do that, a chatbot, they will go to town with it. And we've seen this, uh, unfortunately, play out in some other like really weird ways. Um, the infamous phone tree. You call somebody, your cable company, whoever else, you're stuck on this phone tree. It used to be you punching buttons. Now you're, you're trying to speak to it. It doesn't understand you. That's a nightmare. What I was trying to skate towards was, how do we not let that happen with chatbots? Where it becomes this really bad game of ping pong that doesn't play out well for anybody. What we were trying to do there is say, instead of actually trying to sell something with a chatbot, just be useful first. Number one, be useful. Number two, be present. And number three, then you have to earn the credibility and the trust to actually do some other things. So that's what I was trying to get for, which is a good chatbot will help you along Maslow's pyramid. It's going to give you all the basic stuff first. Yeah. And then you earn the trust and then it can it can recommend things to you. But you can't go right to step eight without actually going through step one too. Like, what do you think the state is right now of most chatbots? Do you think that people are doing that sort of stuff or are they just kind of like figuring out a way to, to push product as fast as possible? It's, pre- it's pretty rudimentary. Uh, I, I have to give Facebook a little bit of credit here because when, I, when, when we did work together, I think they understood that concept and they understood that, you know, when something is brand new like this, you're, you're not going to just shove ads down everybody's throat. It's, that's just not going to work. That's a, that's a terrible way to launch a product. So they... So they did take a more of a holistic view in terms of if you take Messenger as a channel or WhatsApp or any any other thing that has that's chat based. I mean, there's a reason why people use it. I mean, they, they fundamentally want to talk to one another or get some sort of thing going there. Secondarily, if it can be useful to them in terms of providing specific information, either push or pull, awesome. And then from there, you can go into much, you know, machine learning applied methods of recommending things to them. So it's really crude and rudimentary right now, but I do think people get the general vision and, and the roadmap. So over over years, I, I'm optimistic that it will improve. As I mentioned earlier, you were pretty early days at, at both Zendesk and Slack. You had a lot of experience building a go-to-market team. What was that like? What are some What are some good takeaways, uh, or even you know some common mistakes that? senior marketers make when creating a go-to-market team? It was interesting because at Zendesk, you know, there was already, there's already, I mean, Zendesk was already on fire. I got to work with some pretty amazing people, Bill Masaitis, Amanda Clea, who had come in and built 
a very solid machine. So that was a very interesting and different experience for me, which is really, how do you take something that's really working well and try to evolve it? Uh, as opposed to a place like Slack or Narvar, where it was really coming in and we were trying to build from the ground up. Very different kind of scenario. In one case, when something already exists, the question, and this is hard, the question you need to ask yourself is, what would I, what would I want to change? And change is really, really hard for, for most people uh, because we do get attached, emotionally attached to different kinds of things. So when you're taking over a go-to-market team or function, you have to be very hypothesis-driven in terms of the things that you might want to change. Yeah. And you test that, you use the data to hold, prove that out. And sometimes there's some really educated guesses you need to make. On the other hand, when there's a clean sheet of paper, that in a way is potentially harder because thinking about building a marketing team, where do you start? Do you start with demand gen? Do you start with marketing ops? Uh, do you start with product marketing, content, field? There's so many fronts to that battle. That is incredibly challenging. And I don't know that most people never, I've been very fortunate, most people never get to see that clean sheet of paper. So it is a bit of a double-edged sword. In my case, I did, I did have a, a point of view and I, I learned this along the way. What I've seen folks make the mistake is go straight to demand gen because that's what's going to drive the business, which is understandable. The challenge with that is if you're going to go spend money on pick a channel, SEM, SEO, Facebook, whatever else, if the message is not on point, you're just burning cash. Yeah. That's a problem. So by the time I'd gone to Narva, I actually had a strong point of view and playbook in terms of how to build that team. The base of the team was product marketing. Do you really understand why this company exists? Do you have product market fit? And what does that product market fit tell you? Who are you building for? Do they care? Will they miss you? Why do they buy from you? Will they recommend you? And that message needs to be, you know, it's, if not perfect, it needs to be very crystal clear internally before you go outside with it. Mm -hmm. Layering on top of that, the best kind of stories you're going to tell, even if you're in a demand gen environment, are your customer stories. There's nothing better than social proof. Yeah, totally. Let them let them do the talking for you. So product marketing, content, field, and then campaigns. So by the time you're deploying budget or dollars against one or more multi-channel integrated campaigns, everything's come together. You've got your message, clear understanding of customers, the right complementary channels, and the, the cylinders start firing. So for me, I've learned like if, if you can actually build it in that sort of pyramid way, it works pretty well. Yeah, you know what's funny? I see so often people, and I we always pick on billboards or, or like, you know, 300 by 250 yeah. display ads because you have a finite amount of resources and constrained and, you know, a, a very obvious thing. And you see a lot of these billboards or display ads, web ads, it's like you're going to see it for two seconds, maybe less, right? And it just seems like so many companies, especially like startups here in the Valley, you go down one-on-one, you're like, how do you think that that billboard ad is like conveying whatever you're trying to convey? And I kind of feel the same way where it's like, if you don't know your own messaging, like why are you doing large brand spends? That's right. And that is, that is a very common mistake. I think it's partly the pressure of coming in, having to jump into the deep end of the pool and driving the business That's because you're point. in it. I mean, you're in it, you're responsible for it and you've got to go out, hit that quarter, hit the next quarter and the one after that. So there's this pressure 
to to do that. And it takes it takes a lot to step back and say, no, no, we're not going to do that. We would rather spend that money building the right network of customers who will go and stand on our behalf somewhere. But that has an exponential effect. It's sort of this, do you go for the instant gratification, which may get you one or two months, but six months down, the business is looking really shaky. Yeah, not that, again, not that like a billboard or display ads or any of those things are bad in and amongst themselves. Right. Like they could potentially be extremely lucrative channels if done the right way. Would love to see the case study. Yes. Uh, but I think that the bigger problem is like, and I think you just absolutely nailed that, is like this is coming from a CEO or founding team that has to hit. I mean, this is a startup problem that we're talking about that. Yeah. It's like you have targets you need to hit for your investors so that you can get more money on the timeline that you're supposed to do. And investing in like a content marketing team ain't that. Because <laughs> like if you go to those investors and say, oh, no, we've been you know, we hired like four writers and this person has like three really good books that they've written and they're going to be like, wait, what? What are some of the things that you've seen really backfire in your career? Those kind of bad investments that you've seen people make and not necessarily at the companies you've worked at, but or like colleagues or things like that. The, the biggest thing I've seen, this is this is fairly a common pattern, is buying software to solve a problem before you actually understand how you're going to solve the problem. Yeah, or what the problem or is. What the problem is, exactly. That, that's right. So what, what happens is, this is both sales and marketing, you know, on, on equal sides. And sometimes even finance and analytics, you have a vague idea of what the problem is. You want to you wanna scale ABM or you want to do something else that, that works better, lead to account routing, stuff like that. And you kind of vaguely understand the problem at eh, 30,000 foot level. And you match the problem to some solution out there and you're like, we gotta go buy that. And that's where things start breaking down because that will take you another eight months to get it installed, working right, you've got to train your team. The problem is you're so downstream by, by that point, you've spent all these calories and money installing the stuff, customizing it, getting agents to do all that stuff, and you're training either your reps, your marketers or whatever. But if there's any variability in the chance that you're actually solving the wrong problem, that's a, that's a disaster. That could be a multi-year disaster. So I've seen that happening. And and so this is where I've been fortunate enough to work with. Wait, hold on. Can I take a yeah. quick pause there? Yeah. Because I think that's really good. Is that it would be the same thing of like, we're going to invest all this money and effort into ABM when you're not selecting the right accounts to begin with. That's right. right. Like, and not to pick on ABM, totally. but this is like the exact thing of like the software is going to solve the problem. Yes. It's going to get everyone on the same page. It's going to do all that stuff. Nope. But at the end of the day, you're, you're doing the wrong work from the very beginning. 100%. And this is what we did in the we, we were selling enterprise software for retailers to really rethink what happens after you buy something post-purchase loyalty. And, you know, we were fortunate enough where between the CEO, our CFO, and our head of sales, we all believe that we should not just go buy software to solve this problem. We need to make the market and the software will help us scale. But until we do that, it's just, it's just, it's just furniture. It's just going to sit around, do pretty much nothing, drive our reps crazy, drive the marketers crazy. So what we actually did was we essentially bootstrapped it, did stuff manually, but invested time in doing all the right things, which is who are the right accounts? How do we qualify in the right accounts for, for our target market? Who's in, who's out? And within those accounts, who are the right people? All that work you can't substitute it. I mean, the, the software is not going to come up with all those things for you. You have to do it yourself. That's strategy. The software will help scale your strategy, but it won't create your strategy for you. I think that's the, the biggest problem I've seen. 
Same thing with hiring, right? It's like people <laughs> hire, it's like, hey, I need to hire a content marketer because right. I need more content. Or it's like, or like, or even worse, like I need to outsource content marketing. So it's like, you're going to go to someone where they're going to, you're going to pay $10 an article. And it's like crap in, crap mm. out sort of a scenario. But I think that people do that because they feel like they need to have something in their arsenal expedited by either technology or talent because they're overworked, their team is overworked, and they need some sort of escape for that. And again, that could be a good strategy. Like if your team is super overworked and you can outsource some menial tasks to someone and it's not necessarily going to provide the biggest impact, but it gives peace of mind to your team, that could still be an absolutely great investment because it shows that you care. But you got to know, you know, what tool you're using to solve solve what problem. It's just not, it's not a, it's not a perfect fit. Yeah. So, so back to the go to market stuff. Do you think that there were certain things that you saw on teams that were done really well once they had kind of that idea of that base level of product marketing team that to then go and and pour on some gasoline for, for demand gen? Yeah, I think once you get to a point where you, you feel confident and this is, this is, this is the thing where you have to be out there in the field. I mean, the best product marketers also think like salespeople. Yeah. They think like that they have that mindset. They're out there in the field constantly absorbing, you know, where are things being blocked? Why do people love the company? Why do people hate the product? And continuously refining that. When you get to that point, you feel so confident that you could actually, for a day, you could be a sales rep. I think then that's that's the fit that you have. Once you have that, you can start experimenting with multiple channels, content, field, depending on the, the, the type of go-to-market model that you have, one or more of those will make sense, then you can supplement that with any given paid marketing channel as well. And then it's about and then it's about the testing and iteration of those channels to yep. see where where things are resonating. Yep. That's really interesting. I love that idea of when a product marketer, when you know they're doing great, is they can they could literally sit in on a sales sales call and or take a sales call. And that and that I think product marketing has evolved to a point where we have really amazing product marketers who who do love doing that. Yeah. And it's interesting because they self-select into it because they know this is what, what the role requires and they like doing it and they're eventually really successful at it. So I think that's that is a really good dynamic I've seen lately in product marketing. Any particular channels that you thought or you see being really important as we go forward? So I'm a big believer in influencing the influencers, mm-hmm. which is you can go, you know, knock on as many doors as possible, which is great. You have to do that. You have to put yourself out there. But if you can create an indirect and exponential effect, and that's how you scale, you hit a different curve altogether. And to do that, for example, another we were we were trying to reach uh, chief digital officers, yep. CMOs. These people are not searching on Google for this solution. No, of course they are not. just not doing that. What they're trying to do is figure out what their strategy is going to be for the next fiscal year, or how do they work with the CEO to unlock some different avenue for growth. They're looking for new ideas, different ways of doing things. Sometimes challenging themselves, challenging their teams, challenging the CEO. That's going to come through some aspect of either content or meeting other people like themselves in a safe space, they can have these honest conversations. So that's what we actually focused on before even doing any paid channels. How can we get content out to these folks? So either through partnerships or through syndication, and it it, it could not be about the product. That, that was a very hard line 
you know, we all took as a company, which is, this is not a product sell or a product brochure. This has to be about that person, that industry, and what's actually happening there. The second thing was creating that safe space. I think Salesforce does this phenomenally well. It doesn't matter if that business does business with you. It really doesn't. If you're going to create something big, I think in today's era, you have to sell more than software. It has to be a movement. It has to be positive, constructive change. Otherwise, it's just transactional. And that's a totally different game altogether. So if you're going to start a movement, it has to be an open tent. So the approach we took was, it doesn't matter if you do business with us. We don't. We actually don't care. What we're trying to do is sponsor this movement. We will have a big tent. We will invite all the right people. And we will create a zone where you can have conversations with us, with yourselves and other people without being sold anything. And I think that's how you build trust. Those are the two that. biggest channels. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I think that, you know, the, I, I heard this definition of branded content a while ago that was like entertainment that is sponsored with an expectation of nothing in return. Yeah. And I always love that idea because it, it's very pie in the sky, which like every salesperson who hears that is like, that's the most BS <laughs> stuff I've ever heard. But it's this idea that like, if you're going to be doing something like a conference, like an event, like whatever, or like, you know, media or anything, I think that there is some level of the importance of trust and I don't want to say charity because that's not the right word, but of giving to the market with an expectation that you might not get anything back. And like, that's totally fine. I would rather be the person who's pouring into like value added resources for an ecosystem than the person who is like, you know, flooding it with garbage. That's absolutely right. And that is the key word. How do you build? If your business today can be an ecosystem business, I think you've achieved something pretty remarkable because that takes a lot. And that takes not just customers, it takes partners. Uh, it takes other people who can participate in the ecosystem, whether those are analysts or thought leaders, writers, et cetera. I think that is much more exciting than trying to be very transactional, you know, month over month. One of the coolest episodes, and I think, I don't know if it's aired yet, we did a, a piece with a, a CMO who really nails her advisory council in a, in a really interesting way. And uh, and talked about kind of the pitfalls of some of that advisory council stuff and some of the opportunities there. But I think just the thought process of building an advisory council, even if you're super early, even if you're or if you have a company that like has a product where you don't think that it would have an advisor. Like, I just think that going through the thought process of like, what would it take to delight these people? I think is fascinating. And to be able to build an e- or build a place where those people can give candid feedback is a pretty remarkable thing. Like I, we've said on the show before, the idea of, uh, you know, a focus group will tell you exactly what people will do to get a, you know, cold ham and cheese sandwich. And, you know, maybe there's some truth to that with an advisory council. But I think that the difference being that if it's a focus group for like, you know, what what diapers perform better, that's one thing. If it's something where their career is on the line, they're going to take it serious. That's right. Now, I 100% agree with that, which is today, the person who's buying your software, they're not just buying your software. They're actually putting their credibility on the line. They're either putting their career on the line, their job line, wherever they work, or they're trying to steer that ship in a brand new direction, which could be high risk, 
or they're looking to further their career. So we took that approach, which is if we're going to connect people, create an ecosystem, there has to be some value for them beyond just us saying, oh, here we are. What's in it for them? How do we help them either grow themselves professionally or at the same job or somewhere else? So it is really about that person and how we're going to help them and their company together. I want to do a little bit on design thinking for business strategy. This is something that you've talked about in the past. Why do you think that design thinking is important? I guess in general, but also for business strategy. You know, that's really interesting. I actually ended up working in IDEO pretty early in my career. Yeah. And that was a really transformative experience for me because I learned not just about design thinking, but what do you need to bring to the table to break out of the same usual common patterns? Mm-hmm. IDEO has this concept of a, of a T-shaped person. And that's what they say they hire, which is people who can go broad horizontally across multiple disciplines. But then they have that one spike. And when you hire these T-shaped people, they're able to think outside in. And that's the that's the essence of design thinking. Historically, traditionally, we always go inside out. You know, with anything we do, whether it's at home or whether it's at work or wherever else, you've got a problem. It's close to you. You try to solve it and you start by solving it where it is, which is right next to you. And you start working outside one ring, another ring, another ring, on and on and on. Design thinking is really about saying, let's do it the exact other way around. It doesn't even matter if we exist, our product exists, our company exists. Suspend that for a bit. Start on the outside. What is it? What are the jobs to be done? What are people actually trying to achieve? And we'll come outside in. And sometimes you find that maybe you've been chasing the wrong thing. Maybe the solution you thought would work for someone is not the right thing. So it really helps you keep keep your discipline in terms of what is it that you're trying to solve for whom? And then let's go down that path. Let's design for it. How old was Idea when you were there? Idea had been around for a while. At least, yeah, I mean, they did run for more, well, well over a decade for sure. And you, and you just, it was just super early in your career and you had stopped in and it was just one of those things where you're like, this has shaped a lot of the way you thought for the rest of your life. It did because um, the whole concept of being T-shaped, which I took, I took forward and I, it really, it really made an impact on me. And, and for me as a marketer, I try to help my teams be T-shaped Yeah, where we're in this sort of era where you have to be able to connect with other folks, whether they're in sales or engineering or customer support or wherever else, because this is just my own personal opinion, but I think the best CMOs or marketers, they think like CEOs. Mm-hmm. They're able to see across the company, even if they don't have to, and they connect those dots. The T-shaped people are able to do that. There's another concept, which is taking that further, which is really being pie-shaped. Pie isn't the symbol pie, not, not, a, not pizza. But if you can have multiple spikes, I mean, that will set you on an even more... Like sinusoidal pie? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> no, like, 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 a, like, you know, the pie, like the pie symbol. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, because you can go horizontally across multiple disciplines. And then even within marketing, you have at least one or two things that you can go really deep on. That really brings out a lot more of your, your toolkit. I want to go back to Slack for a little bit. And obviously, you know, you spending a long time at Slack and now being at Elastian and the amazing partnership and all that stuff, it's obviously been a, a, a crazy ride. But I wanted to, so how early were you at Slack? I joined when there were about less than 100 people or so. Okay. Yeah. So 
would love to learn like what product marketing was like back then. What were you working on and what was uh, what was kind of the lay of the land back then? The Slack was fascinating because if you look at it, it's like a multiplayer game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been a sort of a gamer on and off for, for, for many years. And when you look at a, a tool or app like that, you, you have to understand not just how one person behaves in it, but how multiple people behave as a team. And so that's what we really focused on from a product marketing perspective. The lens of product marketing or even marketing at Slack was really about how can we help people get the most value out of this so that they can continue to do what they want to do, mm-hmm. which is to communicate, collaborate, build, ship, all those kinds of things using Slack as a hub for that. And to do that, you have to think about what does that sort of journey look like? What happens when you know the first person signs up for Slack? It's no fun if it's just them in, totally. in, in, in one or two empty channels. That doesn't make sense. So how do you, as a product marketer, how do you incent them? How do you enable them with the right message, help, content, et cetera, to invite others? And then the second part is what happens when the other, other, other people show up? You can throw the world's greatest party, but if the party's not great when people get there, they're just going to leave. And so even after the first person shows up and the next three people show up, what happens then? You have five people, 10 people, 20 people in a blank slate environment. How do you customize it for them? How do you help them create conversations? There needs to be guardrails. So product marketing was really about looking into the guts of the product and saying, where are the right places for signposting? Where are the right places to make it easier for people to jumpstart conversations or to start working on things that they need to without focusing too much on the product itself? So it's a very different lens compared to a lot of other, I guess, B2B SaaS uh, product marketing out there. When I think that the the way that Slack had the like hashtag random and like I always thought that's just a like, brilliant thing. And I forgot the thing is whatever, like for flim flam and flabberjabber or whatever it was. Um, but I just always thought that there was, like you said, like guardrails to help you a little bit, but then obviously infinite possibilities to customize. You know, like we, we talk about the one that we have at Mission you know, we have hashtag cheese, we have hashtag dogs, we have like all these silly things that are fun for our team to post photos about, you know, cheese and their dogs and all that sort of stuff. But the idea that like there was some amount of of stuff baked in there where you kind of knew there was other channels and you could see it right in there. But you forget, you know, early days of that or when you, you know, as people who haven't used the product before, and this is just any product that, then you have the onboarding process of the new person yes. who's already like integrated into like, oh, well, th- there's all these channels and then like they don't have all these channels. And like, how do you recommend that? Hey, did you know there's hashtag cheese? All those different things that I think are real, real problems if they're not identified to that to that user and they're not kind of onboarded in the right way. They're just not going to f- feel kind of accepted. How did you kind of think about those things as a product marketer? It started with what was the progression of people entering this this space? What would they do? And what would happen after other people enter the space? So it was this concept of, if you look at these, these phases of the journey, onboarding, engagement, activation, expansion, it was really thinking through each one of them and saying, what are ways we can help people without really getting in the way? 
So whether it was Slackbot or whether it was other channels like email or whether in product news, in product help, contextual things and onboarding experience, all of that was really a major focus in the first couple of years. Were there any like external facing or like demand gen activities that you all did in those in those days that were particularly, I don't know, interesting or well-received? We tested out a whole bunch of different things between digital and even print, et cetera, to see, see how things would go. But ultimately, I mean, I, I don't know who said this best, but retention and engagement is the best form of acquisition. That's how you get, if you can get the flywheel going, that's the best growth mechanism for pretty much anything. And that's what we really, really focused on and making sure that was it was sincere, it was not hokey, it was really about helping people getting the most out of their product in multiple ways, different channels, but it's always that focus. Be helpful first, and then we will help, you know, do other things, uh, get other teams on board, uh, help you discover new features, integrations, all that kind of stuff. It was also a function of who the company was. It was not first to market, there were other tools out there, but it was it was a challenger brand. It was really about challenging this preconceived notion of living in meetings and emails and waiting for people to get back to you, et cetera. So it was challenging that whole concept and saying, there's maybe a different way to work. And that's what we stand for. So again, the software served the mission and the purpose. You know, Slack was all about making people's working lives more pleasant, more productive. And that's that was the the laser focus. One of the things that always struck me about Slack was just how much you got invited to random channels of people that like you sort of knew, but you had like a loose tie to, but you weren't in their organization. I always thought that that was just such a brilliant thing. And then you could toggle in between the different ones because this talks about earlier in the episode where we were saying like about building an ecosystem, right? If you have people constantly inviting you to parties and some suck and some are good and some are great and some are cool and some are private and some are public, there is this amount of like, wow, everyone is using this but me. Did you feel that in those days, like how much of that was intentional from a marketing perspective versus, you know, just built into the product from a product perspective? I think the idea was to give people just enough transparency into what was adjacent to them. One of my one of my favorite features in Slack actually is the ability to do a sneak preview of a channel without actually joining it. Mm-hmm. Which is great because I can just make a quick judgment call and say, yeah, you know, I probably need to be in there, so I'm gonna do a join. And then I can set multiple levels of notifications to mute it so that it's on a push versus pull thing. So that was the idea, is sometimes in the workplace, sure, there is a fear of missing out, but at the same time, you wanna balance that with, there are some things where I want to be six degrees removed, some three degrees removed, and some you want to be in the action. Yeah. And we were trying to design the product in such a way that it allowed you to flex across whatever your needs would be based on which team you were working with. One more thing on this, because I think it's so fascinating, because it's just, it's so emblematic, I think, of, you know, this SaaS 2.0 marketing. It's like, there's delightful experiences. There's remarkable, you know, we always talk about marketing is meant to be remarkable. There were always remarkable experiences, you know, in the product. And I use the hashtag cheese example, because like, it really is like, 
I, I was talking to my girlfriend the other day and I was showing her photos of all the dogs on, uh, on her company's team. And she was like, how do I get it? How do I get invited to just this channel? Right. But, you know, I, I always love that piece of it. And I'm curious how, you know, you think going forward, how can people make these kind of delightful things in technology that people share? And then how can they market them? Because I think that is your CIO going to buy product X because, you know, you can talk about cheese with your workmates? Like, no. But of all the channels that anyone in our company talks about, like dogs is probably number one and cheese is number two. So like, you know, I I say this, a lot of this in jest, but like, it's all true, right? I'm not telling my girlfriend about the general channel. And I think that there's a lot of software out there that kind of doesn't really have a heart or doesn't evangelize their users using it in a way uh, or their their customers using it in a way that is exciting and fun. I think this started with, and people have talked about this quite a lot, which is the whole consumerization of, of enterprise workplace technology. Yeah. That's morphed. I think we, we get the consumerization thing, which is really about, you know, scale and allowing you to personalize and customize. At this point, the bar is even more higher. It's really about not consumerization, but the humanization. Mm-hmm. How do you make the workplace where you spend literally most of your time, probably, much more in tune with you as a human. So the software needs to meld with the behavior that you have. And in most cases, to be perfectly honest, humans are perfectly irrational. Mm-hmm. We're irrational people. We love cheese, we love dogs, and we wanna talk about it regardless of where we are. Yeah. Where, whether we're at work or at home, in the living room on the couch. So it's tapping into who we are from a human perspective and using software to bring out the best of that. That's a product design thing because you could literally design the world's most functional product with cleanest set of interfaces. It would be amazing, but it would still be below that bar. And then from a marketer's perspective, showing is better than telling. Mm -hmm. How do you bring that to life through other people's stories and just tell people, hey, look at me or look at the software, it's awesome. That that's that's just a, that's just a flyer somewhere. So the question is, if you have the luxury of a product that is tapping into the humanity of the people who are using it, how do you use stories to bring that to life? And there's many ways to do that. I'm definitely a big believer in shining a light on the actual people who are using it. So whether they're customers as companies or customers as people, and how are they using it? And sometimes. It's the whimsical stuff that's interesting. Mm-hmm. At Slack, we actually had a flipboard and people had early on started writing about how they were using Slack. And some of the ways they were using it were completely irrelevant to the CIO or Fortune 500 company. It was somebody who had designed a bot that would tell them when the restroom was occupied or mm-hmm. available. Now that has nothing to do with the CIO or CTO company being the choice to buy Slack, but it had everything to do with showing that this was more than just software. This was something that really helped you do your job or be in the workplace in a much more pleasant way and made made your work just a little bit better every day. It potentially doesn't help with acquisition, but it absolutely helps with retention. And that's the thing. Like, it's not going to push your CIO over the edge to say, hey, we need to buy this, but it is the type of thing that, you know, if employees would miss if it was gone, like you mentioned earlier. Absolutely. I think that's been, you know, partly one of the the major metrics, which is, you know, with, you know, NPS has been around for a while, but, 
yeah, will people miss you? Like, will they actually do something about it if you're gone? And to me, I, I have one all-time favorite product, Google Reader. It's no longer alarm. Mm-hmm. And I read a lot. And that was my go-to for being able to consume vast amounts of content every single day. That's how I would start my day. And it's one of those few things where I feel comfortable saying, you know what? I will pony up to a Kickstarter for somebody who's willing to build the next gen version of Google Reader. I will definitely yeah. open my wallet to do that. But that's what you want, or right? you want people to say, I'm going to miss this and I'm going to go out of my, my way to figure out how to bring it back. And that's, if you can get to that level, that's amazing. And I think that reminding people how they use the product, not just in the onboarding process, because we're so freaking overwhelmed anyways. Yeah, yeah. The pre-sales process, we've looked at everything, we're onboarded. And then I love, I call it the, what the heck do we just buy conversation where you're like a week after like, oh my God, we have to actually do this. But then when you can give them friendly reminders, you know, over time of how other people use it, that's the sweet spot. That, that is a sweet spot. And that's where this flip, I think it's still out there. I think it's called several people are reading or something like that. Yeah. It may be outdated now, but that was sort of a compendium of all kinds of businesses, big, small, whatever, anywhere, talking about how they started using Slack, what their experience was, good, bad, ugly, whatever. It didn't matter. It was just honest. And all the different use cases. So you got you got a sense for what is this thing? Is it for me? And you get a pretty transparent view, regardless of who you are, whether you're a big tech company or in consumer goods or a dentist's office or a nonprofit. Let's get in the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like marketing automation with Pardot, you can go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about B2B marketing automation with the world's number one CRM. Salesforce Pardot, it's great. Just check it out. We use it. We love it. You will too. Fast and easy questions. Lightning round style. Are you ready? Yep. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? It would have been Google Reader. <laughs> it would have been Google Reader, that's for sure. I love the Pixel camera. It's phenomenal. Great clarity, awesome filters, works like a charm. What is your favorite chatbot? Slackbot. What do you do for fun? I travel. What's your favorite vacation spot? Hawaii. Which island? Maui. Well, yeah. What is your best advice for a future head of marketing? Find people who are very different from you, who are going to fill you out and compliment you and challenge you all at the same time. Favorite ad campaign ever that you've either done or you could say one that uh, you just liked that you're envious of? definitely cliche, but I, I keep coming back to um, Apple's uh, Think Different campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Least favorite campaign that you've done or one that's out there that you don't care for? I don't think New Cook was really good. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> they, the best part is that everybody actually liked the taste of New Cook better. That's the best part. Yeah. Product grade campaign didn't quite, they quite, didn't quite nail the, I the think, message. I think they figured it out with uh, all the other variants of Coke that they've made out there now. <laughs> what are you most excited about for the future marketing? I'm really excited that marketers are now much more well-rounded and they are broad, more holistic about how they think about the business. That's a phenomenal trend. They are true partners to every CEO out there. 
What question did I not ask you that you rarely get asked that you wish you were asked more often? I rarely get asked this, but sometimes people do ask me, what are like my top two or three life hacks? What are your top two or three life hacks? (laughs) The first one is, and some of these will come across somewhat irrational, but I do believe that the number one life hack for me is I read a lot about completely unrelated things. Mm. And I found that the more I do that, the more I can put together or sort of connect the proverbial dots in a much better way. I'm able to pick from this domain or realm and use that for something else because those things are, are common or, or analogous. So the cross-pollination thing, the just and the, the problem is you can't really, you can't do it consciously because it's not like that. You just have to read a lot and just be interested in a lot of different things. I mean, you see there the you thousands of books that, in our studio. That's so. That's classic. That's that's exact. That's my my number one thing. Number one thing is I do try to find people who are very different from me because that does open my. I've learned a lot of things from folks who are just who think differently, and even though I may not adopt exactly the way they're thinking, it will it will trigger something. Third one is when you're in when you're in a startup environment, a big company, whatever it is. You're going to hit some roadblocks. It's going to be hard. There are going to be some some valleys there. And ultimately, you have to figure out how to suspend disbelief. That is hard. But once you figure out how to put that aside and keep going, that's a really useful life hack. I love it. Great stuff, Harsh. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration 
and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.